Well, good morning. It is great to see those of you who are here at our 300 campus and those over at 301. I know you're in good hands with Pastor Jim. And uh, the rest of our family watching online, we sure hope that you'll be able to get back and join us soon. But uh, what a beautiful time we have had together this morning. But I learned one lesson. So you have to forgive me if there's a bit of a tickle in my throat. When you hum with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's actually harder than if you're opening your mouth singing. So I can't wait until we have that freedom again. And I was thinking about it. The last few days, we were blessed as a family to go up to our farm. Some of you remember from the midday moments, I did a couple of our devotionals from there. Well, we spent the last three days there, and I felt as I was there this morning like my nephew's German shepherd, Duma. Uh, Yesterday, I was watching him. He is born to swim. That dog loves to swim. And uh, there's a floating dock out in the lake, and uh, my niece had gone out, and Duma swam out there. And then one of my kids, who I'll remain nameless, uh, was trying to get up on one of those paddle boards. I don't know if you've ever seen those things. I have not tried it yet. But uh, they were being instructed on how to stand up and doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden, kaboosh, fell into the lake. And Duma was on the edge of the dock just doing this. And my niece is just holding Duma back, holding Duma. Because Duma is the type of dog that is created to rescue and so it just wanted to do what it was naturally created to do, and it was just like, and then what was worse, it even started to hum, just like I was humming this morning, and you can hear it on the dog go, because it was so wanting to do what it was created to do, and so I can't wait when we're going to be able to sing again, and we literally will need to lift the roof off of this building when we're given that permission, amen? Well, I hope you had a good Canada Day celebration. Uh, my family and I, we had a rocking day on July the 1st in Quadville, Ontario. Literally, we picked and moved rocks all day on July 1st. That's why I was rocking. And these weren't little rocks. These were more like boulders. See, in 1967, my dad and my grandfather built this beautiful A-frame cottage right on the shores of Caulfield Lake. Yes, it's true. Look on your Ontario map. There's a lake called Caulfield Lake. And they built this A-frame in one week, laid the cement slab, 26-foot beams that, of trees they cut on the farm with the two-man saw, built it all, locked it, and then God called him to Africa for 27 years. And so we are enjoying the benefit of his hard labor, even though he didn't get to enjoy it too much. But what happened is, over the years, the, the lake, as it rises in the fall, and then the ice build up, and then it dethaws in the spring, it's starting to erode the embankment right in front of our cottage. And so Jen and I decided, you know what, this is the year we need to start building a homemade retaining wall. And uh, on our farm, there's lots of rocks because my ancestors, early settlers, cleared the fields and built beautiful rock fences that people love to come and get their wedding pictures and family pictures beside. So I knew we had lots of rocks. Now, don't worry, I did not destroy any of those beautiful fences that were visible. But the ones that are in the woods that no one can ever see, we found them. And they were built so well. They built like a box with big boulders And then inside, they basically filled it all with the little rocks, and we needed the big rocks. And so that's what we did July 1st, and then Thursday, we did our final load, I think it was on Friday, and we basically carried these to the lake to build a barrier so that it will stop the erosion of the embankment. And as I was doing that, I thought, man, if only my ancestors could see me now. They must be shaking their head going, we worked so hard 
for that dingling, and he's now taking the rocks we cleared from the fields to put into these fences. He's now taking them back and putting them in front of a cottage on a lake. And Jen said to April, if the Lord should tarry, maybe future generations will ask the same thing. What dingling stuck all these rocks right in front of the cottage at the lake? And so we had a good time up at the farm, and I hope you had a great time as well, celebrating this great nation that we live in. Thinking about settlers, this week in my research, I was reading a bit about it. And during the settlement of the western part of the United States, early settlers in horse-drawn wagons would travel together in what was known as wagon trains. You've probably seen pictures of it in history books or if you've watched old movies. And if at any time on their journey they felt threatened or under attack, they would stop the caravan and the drivers would line up all the carriages in a circle as a defensive strategy to protect one another from the oncoming attack. This is where we got the phrase, circle up the wagons. That's where it comes from. Today when people use that phrase, it refers to a group of people or sometimes a team pulling together, coming together to focus on a common goal. So as I was reading this week, I thought, you know what, in a sense, Peter's letter to the believers in Rome who were under attack was really a call to them to circle up their wagons. Circle up their wagons. He wanted to bring them together so they would be grounded and unified in their response as followers of Christ to the personal attacks being hurled at them. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Just go back in your mind. Imagine with me for a moment what it must have been like to be living as a Gentile believer in Rome when Peter wrote this letter. The great city you live in has literally just gone up in flames because of the evil, selfish desires of Nero, who was never satisfied with what he had. So in order to satisfy his addiction for bigger and better, he set his own city on fire with no regard for the citizens living in it just so he could build more. And those fortunate enough to escape with their lives were left homeless, hopeless, and full of resentment. Doesn't that sound like what this pandemic has caused a lot of our people in our community to feel like? Homeless, helpless, and full of resentment. So recognizing the growing unrest amongst his people, Nero did what any cowardly leader does. He tried to shift the blame onto someone else. He tried to deflect the hostility he was facing onto someone else. And the group of people he unjustly placed that target of blame on included you, followers of Jesus Christ. Already hated in Rome for your association with the Jewish people made you an easy target. He spun the truth. He falsely accuses you the Christians, of setting the fires that brought the city down, that perhaps left some of your neighbors homeless, helpless, and full of resentment. Wow. Talk about being publicly centered out and feeling ostracized simply because you belong to a group of people known as Christians. Some of you here this morning know firsthand what that feels like, to be publicly slandered, to have your name and character misrepresented in public. It was to this kind of atmosphere 
that Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, penned this letter to these discouraged, falsely accused, persecuted, fearful brothers and sisters. God chose him to come alongside them in this very difficult time in order to strengthen them and to disciple them and how to respond under fire so that they could live victoriously with hope even in the midst of hostility. Church family, we know not only from past experience, but it is becoming increasingly obvious that choosing to live in obedience to the word of God is going to make us an easy target. We are going to face increased attacks and we are going to be publicly slandered because of our association with Jesus Christ. As we heard on Father's Day, there's a gathering storm. And if we don't circle our wagons as a community of believers around the Word of God and learn how to live well for the sake of the gospel, even in the midst of hostility, we will not survive. We have to circle our wagons and make sure that we bring each other together to make sure that we are supporting one another and protecting one another. So taking a closer look at the instructions God gave his people through Peter to bring them hope and to guide them in the midst of suffering is very timely for us to look at. And I'm grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit in helping me to understand this passage this week. And I'm grateful for the men who have written commentaries that were so helpful to me this week. And so I pray that through his strength, what he has laid on my heart, I'll be able to communicate clearly to you because it's an important message that we know how to respond when under fire. So if you have your Bible, I'd ask that you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we will begin reading in verse 8. And if you are able to, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Follow along. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. In this passage that we've just read, Peter begins to wrap up. He says, finally, all of you. He's wrapping up a section of his letter that he started back in chapter 2, verse 11. You remember where he urged the believers in the midst of their circumstances, do not neglect how critical your behavior in the eyes of those who don't believe is. Dear friends, he wrote to them, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, pay attention to how you are living because the testimony and the reach of the gospel is at stake. So live well, even though you are under fire. Having already dealt with living good before unbelievers, Peter turns their attention here in verse 8 to how they should live in community with one another as fellow believers. An area of our gospel witness that I thought this week, at times perhaps we are not as intentional about working on as we are on how we live before unbelievers. Here's the example that came to my head. Many of you who have had the blessing of having kids will remember Sunday mornings trying to get to church on time. I don't have anything to wear. Mom never did laundry. My alarm didn't go off. Why do we have to be to church so early? Hurry up, get in the van, we gotta go. Church is gonna start. And the, the chaos in the house just keeps building and building. And so as, they, as you scoot the kids out the door, you give them a blessing on the way out. Come on, we gotta go, get in the van. And when you open the door, that morning your neighbor has decided she's gonna water her gardens. And you step foot out the door and you say, good morning, Pat. How are you this morning? We are so intentional about how we live before unbelievers, but sometimes we neglect to have that same commitment to live intentionally good lives one with another. Peter wanted to make sure they understood the importance of having that same commitment to intentionally living good lives one with another, just as they had been before those who did not believe. Because whether they ever admit it or not, here's the truth, your neighbors, my neighbors, are watching us. They're watching to see how we interact with one another, especially in hardship. And what they observe has the potential to either positively or negatively influence their thinking on whether following Jesus Christ really makes a difference. So in the midst of suffering, here are three discipleship truths Peter wanted the believers he was writing to to remember. And we need to remember them as the temperature starts to grow in the society we live and we become more of a target and we become more ostracized from society. The first discipleship principle he wanted them to remember is in the midst of suffering, followers of Christ are called to bless others. Isn't that good news? Followers of Christ are called to bless others. He says finally in verse 8, all of you, that's meaning every Christian, every believer in the community he is addressing through this letter is to exemplify these godly characteristics in community one with another. Let's look at them quickly. 
He starts off by saying, be like-minded. This does not mean that we will always agree on everything. What is being referred to here is that inward unity of heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? That inward unity of heart that we share as believers based on Christ and the gospel. This is what we must circle our wagons around, brothers and sisters. When we find ourselves under fire, that's why not forsaking gathering together is so critical. Because when we gather together, we strengthen that inward unity of heart that we share together because we are in Christ. Amen? I trust that by you choosing to come this morning to gather with God's people has already strengthened you in your heart in the common things that we share with one another through Christ and his gospel. That is why as pastors we are so concerned about the danger of this virus spiritually is because it's keeping us separated. It's keeping us from exactly what we need to be strong in the Lord and to know how to respond under fire. And that unity centered on taking God's word seriously will be essential to surviving as a community of believers as we face increasing opposition. There's a term I've heard during this pandemic. It's called herd immunity. I haven't studied enough about it to tell you a lot about it. But I'm here to encourage you this morning that what we need as a community of believers is herd mentality. I've watched in a beautiful example from God's creation, zebras. Zebras travel in herds. Because when they travel in herds, they can watch out for each other. It's safer when you travel together in herds. And one thing about it is you can sit there on the savannah and watch the zebras. They're not quiet. There's noises and stuff going on that are their way of communicating. I got this, you got this, heads up, over here. They're constantly, some are feeding, some are watching, but there's constant communication as they protect one another from attack. And sure enough, what happens is as some of the zebra begin to wander away from that herd, they become an easy target and get picked off by lions and cheetahs. Brothers and sisters, as we circle our wagons, we need to start having a herd mentality. We need to make sure not forsake gathering together because it's not just a matter of checking off a box. It's a matter of spiritual survival. And the gospel and its reach in this city and our community is at stake. Do not forsake gathering yourselves together. Like the believers Peter was exhorting, we need to all commit to growing in like-mindedness. Yes, that unity in heart that I share with my brothers and sisters, I need to be there so I can strengthen someone and someone can strengthen me. We need to do everything we can to guard against anything that would chip away at our inward unity of heart. So how do we foster this unity? Well, he goes on to give us some very practical ways. Be sympathetic towards one another. Be tender-hearted. Have a deep-seated concern for one another. I trust that you have been concerned for some of your brothers and sisters who you might not have seen for over three months. Do you have a deep-seated concern for your brothers and for your sisters? Love one another. Be compassionate, he says, generous, merciful, and be humble. Notice all these tie in with the theme of submission that Peter has been building throughout his letter. It requires of all of us to have an attitude of general submission to one another, similar to what Paul encourages within Christian households in Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So church family, it is critical that we continue to foster this kind of community. You have to be intentional about it. Because if we do, we will gather strength, not only from God, but also from one another so that we will respond well when we are under fire. John Stott says the church ought to be a living embodiment of what God wants for people in social relations. Are we setting that example for one another and for our community? With that established in verse 9, he says, Therefore do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Why? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. In the midst of suffering, followers of Jesus Christ, it is not optional. We are called to bless others. And the believers in Rome knew far too well what it meant to be on the receiving end of insult, of verbal abuse, and even physical persecution. So Peter, drawing from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, instructs them, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Because followers of Christ, and I learned a new word this week and I love it, are to be purveyors of peace and unity. I was using it this week on my kids to impress them because my vocabulary sometimes isn't that broad. But we as Christians are called to be purveyors of peace and unity, not disruption, not disharmony, whether inside the community of believers or with those outside. A purveyor is a person who sells or deals in particular goods. So as believers, in the midst of suffering, we must be people who commit to spreading and promoting peace and unity, not disruption and disharmony. And the way to become excellent sales reps of this kind of gospel living, Peter says, is to not retaliate as the world does. Repay evil with blessing. You know, we use that word a lot, blessing. I learned some things about it this week that you might not want to hear but we need to hear it. Blessing goes beyond simply speaking well of others. The blessing that Peter is referring to here, the Christian blessing that we are to give others who mistreat us includes finding ways to serve them. It includes praying for them. It includes expressing thankfulness for them, speaking well of them, and even desiring their well-being. Are you kidding me? To which Peter would shout, no, because to this you were called. This is the type of life God has called and redeemed us to live. This is the type of people God has called us to be. Romans 12, 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And he will reward us for living according to his will. Yes, we will receive rewards on top of our amazing salvation, which Peter has already explained to them, our inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We will receive rewards on top of that if we will live according to God's will and bless those who persecute us. We must choose to live out this discipleship principle. And to back up his exhortation, in verses 10 through 12, Peter draws from Psalms chapter 34, verses 12 to 16. And notice in verse 12, what a motivation for committing to live such righteous conduct. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Isn't that good news? 
Don't you want the eyes of the Lord to be on you? And don't you want the ear of the Lord to be attentive to your prayer? You see, God sees the good deeds of his children and he blesses them with care, with protection and guidance, even in the midst of hostility. So if we want to experience this biblically blessed life, not the prosperity gospel life, if you want to experience the biblically blessed life where we experience real joy and where we experience fullness of life in the midst of hard times, it requires each of us to be humble, to have a loving attitude towards everyone, not to be vindictive in our response towards those who insult us, but to exhibit pure and honest speech, to disdain sin and be pursuers of peace with the right motive to live a life of obedience that pleases our Lord and Savior. And if we choose to live like this in the midst of hardship, we will not only experience the abundant life Jesus refers to in John chapter 10, verse 10, we will also remove any legitimate grounds for people to personally attack us. This is the path we are called to follow. But listen closely. Following it does not guarantee that we will not suffer. In fact, it will actually increase the odds that we will suffer. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. We know that. We've experienced it. We are experiencing it, and we are going to continue to experience it. But take heart. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And so Peter says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Brothers, in the midst and sisters, in the midst of hostility, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to bless others. And secondly, as followers of Christ, we are called blessed when we suffer. We are called blessed when we suffer. So in order to strengthen the believers to remain faithful as witnesses of the gospel in the midst of hardship, Peter wanted to reorient their thinking, to change their perspective on their suffering, which we need to do as well, to see that there is no greater compliment for a follower of Christ than when we suffer opposition for doing what is right. There is no greater compliment In fact, we are called blessed, we are privileged, we are honored should we suffer for the sake of righteousness. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the attitude of the apostles after they were beaten by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 verse 41? Listen to this. They rejoiced because God had counted them worthy. They rejoiced because God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. In the midst of suffering, all believers need to hold on to this biblical perspective if we're going to live victorious, obedient, influential lives even in the midst of opposition. And did you notice how Peter in his desire to encourage these believers who had been beat up to encourage them and to strengthen them. What did he do? He starts by first building for them a biblical understanding, a theology of suffering for what is right. That's where it starts before he goes on to tell them what to do. That's why it's so critical that we gather together because God will give us 
the understanding that will motivate our hearts, that will influence our actions to respond properly when under fire. Right theology always precedes right living. In verse 14, he then says, do not. Do not fear threats. Do not be frightened. Rather, as it says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, the Lord Almighty is the one who we are to regard as holy. He is the one we are to fear. He is the one we are to dread. Brothers and sisters, having the right theology based on the word of God makes all the difference in being able to endure and live honorable lives even in the midst of hardship. When we understand the sovereignty of God and we trust in his providential care, the troubles of this world, yes, though real, yes, though painful, yes, though they will continue, become more manageable when we can see them from God's perspective. Take comfort from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Listen to this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Hallelujah. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You are worth more than many spares. You can trust in his care and he will look after you. So do not fear. He goes on in verse 15. Instead, don't fear. Revere Christ as Lord. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Worship him as Lord of your life and recognize his holiness in every area of your life. I see some young families here with their kids here. Young people, I can just tell you, the greatest wisdom you can get from God's word is fear God in your entertainment choices, in your sports activities, in every area of your life. If you're a young person in here, the best discipleship influence I got from my father was allow Jesus to be holy in every area of your life. It's not selective. It's he's Lord of your whole life. Set him apart. Focus on living a life set apart for God's glory is one of the best antidotes for worry and for depression. And at the same time, what that does is it makes his holiness known to the very ones who are harassing you, which is what they need to see. That is why he tells them, always be prepared. Always be prepared. When? Always be prepared. To give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, implying, brothers and sisters, as we circle our wagons and as opposition increases, we must have a constant readiness and a willingness to speak up for him, to confess our allegiance to him, and to witness fearlessly to his saving grace. It only makes sense that in the midst of suffering, if the believers who Peter's writing to would live in submission to Christ in all the areas that Peter has been instructing to him in this section of his letter, it only makes sense that it would catch people's attention because it would be so counter-cultural. And they would become curious as to the hope that they had in spite of the circumstances that these believers, their neighbors, were facing. 
That's why he wanted them to be prepared. Be prepared to articulate the great salvation that you have received and the hope that accompanies it. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In the midst of suffering, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And note how he challenges the believers to respond in gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. And in verse 16, here's why. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. Note the difference. This is key. Note the difference between the result of living good lives before unbelievers in chapter 2, verse 12. And the difference between living good lives before unbelievers here in verse 16. In 2.12, he instructs them, those who are observing their good deeds could possibly lead to their conversion. While here, it will lead to their shame. Living good lives before unbelievers will also lead to their shame. People watch and observe the lives of believers and continue to mock and mistreat them, will be put to shame, which in the New Testament means more than simply embarrassed. It actually involves judgment. God is our defender. He is the one who will shame our enemies. We have no responsibility or right to shame our enemies. God will shame our enemies. Romans 12, verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And if you look at chapter 2 of uh, 1 Peter in verse 6, for the scripture says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who, what, trusts in him, in Christ, will never be put to shame. We don't need to worry we will never be put to shame. But we also need to, we don't need to worry about putting our enemies to shame. God will take care of that. In this present time, he will use our good conduct as a way to prove how wrong our accusers are. But more importantly, listen to this. The persecutors will one day be put to eternal shame at the last judgment. God will eventually establish complete justice. So he says, if it is God's will that you suffer, let us make sure it is for good deeds done out of loyalty to him, not because of our bad behavior. Never forget, if it is God's will, did that jump out as you as we read this? If it is God's will that you should suffer for what is right. Brothers and sisters, God is in absolute control. He is the one calling the shots. He is behind every situation we face, and he will use it for his glory, for our blessing, for their shame, and possibly their conversion. Do you see how many things are going on through our suffering? His glory, our blessing, their shame, and even possibly their conversion. Suffering is not something that is wasted time. It is something that God is doing incredible work in a number of people's lives 
that we might be going through at this time. So in the midst of opposition, keep this biblical perspective. Do not fear or be frightened, for we are called blessed when we suffer for what is right. And is this not the example our Lord and Savior set for us to follow? Look at the start of verse 18. For Christ. This verse, as I was studying this week, I don't even know how they work, but I just remember my mom used to cook homemade beef barley soup and I think what's called a pressure cooker. She would snap that lid and you would hear that start going and it just seemed to build and it seemed to build. And we were always afraid what's going to happen when that thing finally pops. The pressure cooker. This verse this week, man, as the Lord helped me put together this sermon and it just started to build and just, it was like at this verse that that lid of emotion and thankfulness and wow in my life for what God has done for me was ready to pop. Listen to this verse. It is incredible. Verse 18, the first part, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Underline that verse in your Bible. In fact, here's what I want us to do together. I want us to read that section of the verse together. And when it says to bring you to God, I want you to say to bring me to God. Let the truth and the power of this verse sink into your hearts. Are you ready? Verse 18a, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring me to God. Wow. The third point in the midst of suffering is that followers of Christ must daily recall that we have received the ultimate blessing. Yes, we are called to bless others. Yes, we are called blessed when we suffer. But daily recall that we have received the ultimate blessing. In this section of the chapter, verses 18 to 22, I was so encouraged when I opened up the first commentary this week and said, by the way, this is the most difficult section of Scripture to interpret, and no one really knows completely exactly what it's saying, and there's lots of debate everywhere. And it went, great. And so I went on to prepare the sermon. And what the Lord laid on my heart is where I want us to kind of end with this this morning, because we don't have time in this sermon, or maybe even two sermons, to try and go through each of these different symbols and references that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has included in this section. But there's one major part that pulls it all together. And that's what I want us to focus on in this section. And that is the triumph and the vindication of Jesus Christ and what that means for us in the midst of suffering. We have received the ultimate blessing, the gift of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who came to bring us to God and in coming also provided us with the perfect example to follow of how to respond when under fire. You know, it's so helpful to have instructions, but the more I'm realizing ordering parts, I needed to order a part for our generator at the farm because the pull cord finally went. I'm not a handy mechanic type of person. So I ordered the part off Amazon. Guess what? It came with no instructions. It was all packaged nicely, right? Frustrating. We don't need to be frustrated on how to respond when we're under fire. He has given us the perfect example to follow. And he's given us the instructions. What God was asking the believers in Rome to do was exactly what Christ had done for them. It's exactly what Christ had done for them. 
Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Because of God's will, Christ also suffered once for sins. No other sacrifice would ever need to be made. Jesus paid the penalty for sin as a substitute in our place to undo the effects of sin in our lives and to restore us into relationship with our Creator God. And because of Christ's obedience to the Father's will for Him to suffer in our place, here's the good news. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the ultimate blessing. In the midst of suffering, never forget this. This is the ultimate blessing. To be forgiven of our sins, to be brought into a right relationship with Creator God. Praise be to God that He not only sent a Savior to rescue us from eternal suffering, but He also sent a Savior who leads by example and 100% totally understands what we are going through when we are suffering for what is right. He is the example, and he totally understands. In their suffering, Peter is wanting them to recall that even Christ, who they belong to and follow, suffered unjustly, just like they are suffering unjustly. The just for the unjust, referring to the sinlessness of Jesus and his atonement on our behalf. He who personally never sinned and had no sin nature took the place of us. Sinners. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It's crazy how much God loves us. It is crazy how much God loves us. And yet at times we will not circle our wagons and we will not be committed to gathering together and we will not live and respond under fire the way he wants us to. And yet he keeps loving us. And yet he keeps loving us. He who had no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is love, it says in 1 John. Not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And why did God will this? So that through Christ, we might be brought to himself. In this life spiritually and in the life to come, completely. We are the beneficiaries of his suffering. Who's going to be the beneficiaries of your suffering? Who's going to be the beneficiaries of my suffering? We are the unjust for whom the one just man died. So here's the question that just drove me this week. So why in the midst of suffering do I need to bless those who accuse me? Why is it critical that I remember I am called blessed when I suffer for what is right? Because this is the example our Savior called me to follow. If you want to be his disciples, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, We therefore, as Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, listen to that. He is saying, we are therefore, now that we've been called, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to the unbelievers, to those within our community, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And here's where I landed. Wow. Friends, it's all about being called, being redeemed, being saved from facing God's wrath. It's all about his glory and bringing people to Jesus 
who can ultimately take them to God for his glory to bring people to Jesus so that he ultimately can take them to God. That's it. That's why I must be willing to bless others when I'm persecuted. That's why I must be willing to recognize I'm called blessed when I suffer because it will bring glory to God and it will hopefully draw people's attention to Jesus who's the one who can ultimately take them to God and the cycle will continue. What an amazing mission we have been given. He is our ultimate example. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. You might think, is it worth it? What if one neighbor of yours comes to the Lord by observing how you are acting? You've lost your job, maybe. You're not sure where your next paycheck's gonna come from, but they see something in you that causes them to be curious. You share Jesus, Jesus takes them to God. There's rejoicing over one who repents. So brothers, as we wrap up, and sisters, in the midst of suffering, please regularly recall the privilege of having received the ultimate blessing of Jesus Christ, and that through his suffering on our behalf, we have been brought to God. And let us also rejoice that our suffering Savior was triumphant over death, and he rose again. His physical death was overturned in his resurrection. Guess what? That guarantees us as his followers, even though we might be suffering, that we too will share in that salvation and vindication and victory. Amen? Even though Jesus suffered, he was ultimately vindicated by God. So too, if the believers Peter is writing would live righteously as he's been exhorting them to do, they too will be vindicated from the suffering they are experiencing and sit with Jesus in the presence of God. This is the hope that we should be sustained by as we endure suffering, the hope of which we are ready to speak and the hope Peter urges them to embrace. So yes, there are and there will be a great deal of rejection and hardship on our journey as followers of Jesus Christ that we will have to endure. But the greater reality is this. Like Jesus, suffering for what is right is the path to glory So when we are suffering unjustly, we need to look to Jesus as we sang this morning, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him in the midst of suffering. Consider him who endures such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As one author said so well, the good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. The good life is the hard life of trusting God. In the gospel, we have been promised, as Peter explained at the beginning of the letter, an unfathomable inheritance. Ours freely for the taking, all because of the grace God extended to us through the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that is in us. Our calling now, brothers and sisters, is to circle the wagons While we wait for the coming of salvation that will be revealed in the last time, our calling is to honor Christ as holy, Lord of our lives, which will in turn be reflected in our commitment to live such good lives, even in the midst of suffering, before our brothers and sisters and those outside the family of God. Christ has already won the victory and has absolute power over those very people who insult you. 
That victory has not been finalized, but it is in process. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Rest assured that this triumph is absolutely certain and we will one day share fully in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your hand upon Peter as he wrote this letter. Wow, what good news and yet what difficult news to understand as a believer back in that day facing things that we haven't even tasted of yet. But God, I thank you that your word endures. And I thank you that the same challenge that the believers then needed to hear, we need to hear today. So Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your incredible love. Help us to have an eternal perspective. And oh God, I pray that your spirit would convict our hearts to make sure that we are in the caravan that we are in the community, that we are traveling with one another. And Lord, I pray that we would circle up our wagon as a community of believers known as Calvary Baptist Church around taking your word seriously and then strengthening one another to apply these principles in our lives. Help us even this week, Lord, to bless those who insult us. Help us to remember that we are called blessed when we suffer. And help us to daily celebrate that we have received the ultimate blessing. Thank you for sending your son to bring us to you. We love you and we commit our week to you. We depend on you and the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to live this gospel life out and to respond well under fire. And it's in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that I pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, thank you so much for making gathering together a priority for you this morning here at 301. And for those of you at home, we love you. We hope to see you soon. Let us not forget, okay? Thank you so much for God's provision in our lives and for your faithfulness to give to this mission so that others may be brought to Christ. Thank you for being obedient to God. And this is the time on our service where you can give your tithes and your offerings. And there's different ways for you to do that, which you can check on the website. Or if you're here physically, there's plates at the back door. But let's continue to worship God generously because he has been so generous to us. We love you and we trust that you will have a great day and a good week. God bless you.